He's got one foot in the frying pan and one in the pressure cooker. Believe me, as a bowler, I know that right about now, your bladder feels like an overstuffed vacuum cleaner bag, and your butt is kind of like an about-to-explode bratwurst. Hey, do you mind? I wasn't talking when you were bowling. Was I talking out loud? Welcome to Munson's at the Movies. My name is Kyle. I will once again be your host. Joined by the rest of the Munsons, want to give them a wide berth. It's what is called a born loser, a real Munson. <laughs> and talk a little bit about what's going on in their worlds. Rigby is running late today, per usual. And but we'll throw it to Case next. I got sidetracked today. I was listening to uh, a radio show. And they gave a wild movie box office story that i had never heard before and since i've looked up plot probably close to a thousand movies now and found box office information for they were talking about will smith's wild wild west and apparently it did very well in the box office but it only did well in the box office because underage moviegoers bought tickets for that and went to south park the movie (laughs) <laughs> There's a bunch of birds in the sky. Hey, hey man, that that check still clears, so I doubt they're too upset about it. <laughs> I'm fascinated with that story. I can't wait for us to cover somebody that is possibly in Wild Wild West at some point. <laughs> That's also the movie that Will Smith chose to do over being Neo in The Matrix. Yeah. Whoa. Talk about a goof. All right, James. What about you? Yeah, man. So uh, I wanted to share a little fun fact with you guys. So Chaz Palminteri Jr. is two and a half months old now. And uh, my wife and I use an app to track how much she's eaten and how much she's gone to the bathroom. And what I realized is a funny aspect of it is I can tell you the exact amount of diapers I've changed since she's been born. Nice. Got stats. Ooh, do we get to guess? You guys want to take a get a guess at how many diapers a two and a half month old has gone through so far? 75 days into life. 3,004. Ooh, 1,500. <laughs> you say 1,600? Oh. 75 days in, let's say three per, three to four per day. I don't know. Is that 375? Okay, so uh, the first two guesses were a little over. Kyle, you were uh, <laughs> substantially <laughs> under. But you guys were on the right path. So uh, the answer is just over 900. We're oh. knocking out a clean 13 per day. Oh, shit. Wow. Nice. It's an impressive amount of pisses and shits that have been handled in my house. <laughs> my logic was was uh, twenty a day. That's what I. That's where I went with on mine. That, I mean, it, there's highs and lows, but you know, we're we're not gonna, we're doing batting average here. So shitting and pissing average, we're looking at about thirteen a day. Does that app also measure how long it takes you to change them? So you have some speed numbers as well? No, but I bet if one day I popped an Adderall and went through the numbers, I could do the math because <laughs> it's. From when I start feeding her, there's the gap from when I changed her. So it'll be like, sometimes it's five minutes and sometimes it's like 15. And usually in the middle of the night is when I struggle the most because that's when I'm like disoriented and she's fighting me. But during the day, ooh, dude, I'm, I'm Malcolm, Mal- what is it? Malcolm Gladwell, I'm 10,000 hours. I'm mastering changing diapers at this point. I don't have any super exciting life updates to share um, other than I'm, I'm still healthy-ish and haven't fallen apart. And that's that's good. That's a win. Uh, happy to have Dames Mars back on the pod. Dames is one of our favorite guests. He is a stand-up comic, a trendy asshole, allegedly. 
musician, anthropologist, writer, author, fun junkie, and CEO of Lock 22 Productions. He was previously with us for the Brian Cranston and Daryl Hanna episodes. Dames, welcome back, my friend. How are you? And, and any exciting updates in the, the world of the Michaels? All is well here. I'm glad to be back. Hey, Dames, is that a trendy asshole line? Is that a anatomical label or is that just a figurative label? I think it's anatomical. <laughs> That's very astute observation for you. So I'm going to give it to you. <laughs> and it's bleached is, is what we're getting at. <laughs> Ah, well, that's what I thought it was code for. Right. So what's what's exciting and new in the um, production side of things? I know you guys always have something going on. Well, me and uh, Dane, who obviously did CF3 um, together, we're working on a new project that's called Been There, Shot That, where we go to locations that had films made there famously. For example, the first episode that we've been working on is Children of the Corn, which was filmed in Whiting, Iowa. And we drove up there, uh, hung out with the director of the film, and made a bunch of recreations of the shots from the film with the actual locations. Of course, we throw comedy into it and, and a little bit of information, truth. Uh, it's going to be, they're, they're probably going to run between 15 and 25 minutes apiece each episode. That's awesome. And uh, I, I don't think there's anyone, there's people doing things like it, but not what we're doing more than anything i don't even care if people watch it because it's fucking fun to make that ass dude we'll watch it when you see my boy malachi tell him what's up for me <laughs> yeah, i watched the movie in the city center with probably 30 extras from the original oh that's badass yeah it was that's so cool, cool man I was like this is this is worth spending a day out in in the middle of nowhere all right man well we we're happy to have you back and uh we're going to try to make some magic, see if we can replicate the, the Daryl, Hannah, and Brian Cranston magic. At least something like that. All right, birthdays for July 28th. Rigby's not here, so I'll, I'll step in. First birthday we have this time is John David Washington. Has a very famous father, Denzel, if you've ever heard of that man. He's pretty young. Yeah, he hasn't been around in the industry too long, um, but he's been in movies like Black Klansman, Malcolm and Marie. Um, Tenet, Beckett. So he's done quite a bit in a short amount of time. How old is John David Washington? I had to watch Tenet three times before I understood what was going on. And I love <laughs> Nolan, dude. Three times. Well, Denzel just started looking like he's over 45. So that doesn't help. Yeah. True. I think he's like my age. I want to say he's like 34. 34. He looks so much better. But I want to say he's like 34. <laughs> I'm going to say 37. Ooh. I'm going to undercut you guys and go 32. John David Washington is turning 38. Yeah. So Dames takes the first one. Okay. Nice. He's a little bit older than I would have thought. I'm with you. I'm with you guys. I like it. Dames takes the first one. Second up, we have Elizabeth Berkeley. Well, best known, but not for great reasons for her role in Showgirls, First Wives Club. Yeah, Saved by the Bell. I mean, that's the only one that's like great, you know? Yeah, that's Saved by the Bell. Yep. How old is... Elizabeth Berkeley. 50? 47. 54. James on the dot. She's turning 50 on the 28th. Oh, look at that. Nice. I know everything there is to know about Elizabeth Berkeley. Everyone knows that. (laughs) (laughs) He is an Uber fan. Yeah. You know, me and the rest of the Berkeley heads. (laughs) Don't hate the player. Don't hate hate the game. Uh, Last but certainly not least, Lori Laughlin. 
Um, Rigby, I believe, put in the group chat this morning that Laughlin is hot and was wrongfully accused. <laughs> I don't know how truthful that is, but that is his opinion. She's also uh, the most famous person to graduate from my high school. Really? Yeah, so Lori Laughlin's innocent in my eyes. Okay, so <laughs> what, someone obviously from Full House. That's the, the main, yeah, reason, yeah. main reason people would know her. Wasn't she in the movie Rad or something like that? Yes. And it was the worst stunt double scene ever. Ever? I mean... 1986 She's, rad. It that might also be the best stunt double scene ever. <laughs> so how old do we think Lori is? 58. Wow, that's a good guess. Well, I have to look through the yearbook, but... <laughs> <laughs> she was class of such and such. <laughs> yeah, right. 62, and she looks great. Check the, uh, the records for your local penitentiary. You might figure out. <laughs> for real. Too soon. I'm going to say 59. 59? Oh, we're all in the same area. James, what was your guess? 60. Oh, man, you guys gave each other tiny windows. But one of you prevailed, and that's because she's turning 58. So Case wins that Damn, one. Damn, Case, nicely done. Nice. Everybody was pretty damn close. We were yeah. max of one away. Everybody got one. Except for Rigby, because he's a piece of shit. Because he didn't decide to show up on time. He's a workaholic, like he's impressing somebody. Happy birthday to those people and nobody else. Nobody else had a birthday on that day. Five actors we threw onto the wheel for episode 67 were John Hawks, Anne Bancroft, John Michael Higgins. There's a lot of Johns. Three of the five were Johns on this episode, which is, you know, we had a pretty good chance, 60% chance of hitting a John. And by golly, we did, because it wasn't Emil Hirsch. It was John Turturro. And Dames decided to show up and talk some Turturro. Turturro has 114 credits. This man has done quite a bit as an auteur in his career on and off the screen doing some he's got some theater sprinkled in there he's directed some pictures and he's worked quite a bit with three particular individuals spike lee cohen brothers and adam sandler those are kind of the three big pots that he's worked in over the years and we'll talk about a bunch of them as we go along but before we get into the minutiae we're going to get into some trivia see if james can stump us Fast and Furious style. So, uh, Dames, you're obviously part of the initiated here, but I'm going to read off three facts, uh, two of which are going to be true about John Turturro, one of which is not going to be true about John Turturro, but is going to be true about one of the many cast members of the Fast and the Furious franchise. The boys here are going to guess which one that is. So, uh, I'll preface this by saying these facts are awesome, but there is uh, a lot of information in here. So, don't let, if you need me to repeat something, please ask. So, uh, fact number one, he was abandoned by his family at the age of 13, in which led him moving in with his girlfriend's parents. Girlfriend wanted to get into acting, so they went to an acting class. He was uh, hired for his first gig, and the rest is history. Fact number two, his family originally immigrated from Bari, Italy during World War II. That is the exact same time and exact same small coastal region that my grandparents immigrated from. Fact number three, was told by former President Barack Obama that he was responsible for bringing him and his wife Michelle together. Oh, shit. Those are fucking good. Yes, they are. Holy. Continue to oppress, James. Mm, 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 like, it throws me off for trying to make jokes. They're so good. It's getting harder. I have to admit, it's getting harder to find the Fast and Furious facts. I think the f number one is the lie. And I think that's because John Cena moved in with his 13-year-old girlfriend, or whatever the hell it was. Well-known child actor, John Cena. That's right. Yes. He was in Saved by the Bell, right? Yes, of course. 
I think the performer is Gal Gadot, but I'm trying to figure out if it's that last one threw me. I'm going to stick with my initial hunch that Gal Gadot is what number two fact is about. James and Gal share a, a common thread of their background. Interesting. We both have great hips. Very Italian Gal Gadot. Uh, <laughs> noted Italian. Yeah. Number three is a lie because that would have been the, the people that brought Barack Obama and Michelle together. That would have been Paul Walker because he had to do something of importance before he died. <laughs> Jesus. Jesus. I mean, if there's two more people I can see just connecting on a spiritual level, it's Barack Obama and Paul Walker. Those two seem like they really would get along. We had an answer for each of the questions. That's the first time in a while that's happened. So I will start with the first true fact, and that's uh, he and I actually are from the same place. I thought that was super cool. So my family's from Bari, Italy, which is uh, essentially a state. It's a region in Italy. And we're from a town called Corrado, and he is from a town called Giovinazzo. Today, this, the entire state has one million people total. But in World War II, it was less than 200,000. So like today, it's like the size of Indianapolis. Back then, I mean, I don't know, 200,000. That's like two different Michigan, Ohio State games. Like There's not that many people. It's a small, small community. Um, so that's obviously going to help him with his final score that I realize there's a chance uh, our grandparents were friends. This is also true. He was told by former President Barack Obama that he was responsible for bringing him and his wife, Michelle, together. So Totoro entered the public consciousness playing a racist dickhead in Spike Lee's 1989 uh, Do the Right Thing, his breakthrough movie. Barack took Michelle to see that on their first date. And when Totoro finally met the president, he shared that story with them. He's like, your, your movie that you starred in brought me and my wife together. Yeah. In fact, number one, uh, his parents abandoned him at 13 and he lived with his girlfriend and got into acting because she was an act, uh, wanted to get into acting. That's not true about John Totoro, but that is true about the famous Noel Gouli Elmi. I think oh, I said Noel. that correctly. Yes, uh, the Let's man who famous, famously played Hector in the original Fast and Furious movie and has played a character named Hector a total of eight different times in his career. <laughs> he looks like a Hector. You'd be correct because he's been playing Hectors for <laughs> a long time. <laughs> he's played Hector as many times as Watanabe's been killed in a role. Nah, don't settle down now. That's oh, not even remotely close. There's no way that's... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't think that's accurate. <laughs> Gal Gadot is from Israel and John Cena uh, got into acting after he, he ran out of money and was living in his car homeless when he moved to Hollywood. All right, Case, tell us a little bit about John Turturro's Snapshot box office history. You know, I, I was curious on how this one was going to come out because uh, I've been a fan of Turturro for a long time, and I've found that I am uh, biased. If I'm a fan of somebody, I just assume they're going to rank super, super high. But I learned my lesson last episode that that is not always the case. So I tempered my expectation. First off, I want to thank Susan Sarandon for forcing me to redo my spreadsheet because it came in handy with the Toro episode and his 114 credits. This dude has been in a lot of movies and, uh, and pretty good ones too. There's nothing super interesting that stands out about his snapshot box office, except he's got a, a massive, massive failure in, in one of his movies. He's got a movie that ranks six and for the amount of money that it's lost. And it was The Nutcracker, in which it lost $73 million. Pulled in a cool 17 mil off of a $90 million budget. 
Dude, you could have given me five guesses and I would have guessed Transformers five different times. That's <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea. Those movies are a money press. Those things are never going to lose money. The other box office thing I thought was really interesting was the movie we joked around about at the end of the last episode of The Search for One-Eyed Jimmy. That movie was made on a $75,000 budget, which the director raised on his own. And it made 71000 back, so he only lost four grand. But uh, I just thought that was a really cool story. And, and we may get into it further, but those are really the, the two most interesting things in his. He's got a lot of movies that made money. He's got a lot of movies that lost money. In terms of ranks, comparing him to other actors, he ranks 10th overall in amount of money made in terms of box office. His star meter's low. With, uh, he comes in at 37th. Critic ranking is low at 34. Fan ranking is low, and that surprised me. He comes in 37th. His fan ranking average is 59.3 in Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, and then he's 64th and 59 in, in two different box office metrics. So overall, my man comes in ranked 48th. Slower than I thought it would be. Yeah, me as well. Hmm. Anybody else shocked by that? I'm not shocked because it's like, I think when we go through this guy's filmography, it's going to be like, he is the character actor that's on the other end of the spectrum where it's like, I don't know anyone who says they don't like him right. and like, yeah. oh, this guy's great and everything he does. But like, at no point are you like box office gold, you know, yeah. you're just, you're just yeah. like, oh, I bet he's great in that role. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like, he's underrated, but not, you know, I don't know how to say it. He's underrated, but appreciated. I think there you go. That's a good start of us trying to parse through why, like what, how do we categorize this guy in his film career? So that's, that's a good start. Thanks case. You bet. 48th. And we'll see how it compares the Munson meter score. All right, so first feature film we're going to do is 86, so or at least first major role. Leading up to that, the early years, and James obviously fill in the gaps of anything I miss. Uh, but James, what I have in the show notes, James didn't get into much of. So he's born in 57 in Brooklyn, uh, two episodes in a row where James gets an Italian from New York. That's right. Uh, James, was got, he's got to be on a little bit of a heater at this moment in time. But this man went to SUNY New Paltz and was a theater major, so didn't go to some huge prestigious school for his undergraduate degree. He did for his master's, got his master's in fine arts at Yale in this Yale School of Drama, so he stepped it up a little bit on the master's side. Ever heard of it? But he's a SUNY guy, you know? That's not normally a compliment for a lot of people. Oh, man. All, all the SUNY listeners. I know. Shocking. that They know. About 20 years ago, I uh, was a finalist for a job at SUNY New Paltz, and I didn't get it. And so I'm relieved that tonight I can finally let go of that grudge, (laughs) knowing that the Toro went there. So all is good with me and New Paltz. Well, his first role ever was in a pretty big film, his very small role, but he was in Raging Bull in 1980. He played Van at Webster Hall Table, an uncredited role, technically, but that's a big one to start off your film career. He started getting into a lot of theater around this time as well. So in 1983, he wrote the title role in a play um, that ended up winning an Obie Award off-Broadway. Again, starting to get involved in the, um, the theater and, and film scene and, and writing some, doing some writing work early on in his career. <laughs> Played uh, guy number one in Exterminator 2. I watched Exterminator 2 for this episode. Wow, I'm proud of you, Kyle. I never spotted him. I couldn't spot John Turturro in this movie, but I've seen Exterminator 2. Was that like a work off of The Terminator? What What is Exterminator 2 about? 
Yeah, it's about a a guy who's an exterminator who people are afraid of. Sounds pretty self-explanatory to me. Yeah, it's all right. It's an an interesting one. Say that. Mostly impressed that this is the second one. So the first one was good enough for a sequel. Yeah, first one classic. (laughs) The the, the 80s be wild and Craig, the 80s be wild. I got you. 84, he was alongside Marissa Tomei and the Flamingo Kid. I think it's one of Matt Dillon's first first ever uh, movie roles because he's all over the cover and stuff. Too bad Rigby's not here because in 1985 he was, did an episode of Miami Weiss, number one new show. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know Rigby loves that. But I, I guess if you look at the early career, the, the first movie where he had like any significant screen time was in Desperately Seeking Susan alongside Madonna. He played a character named Ray. Basically like a magic show MC. So he had like three or four scenes in that. Pretty limited, but um, kind of an entertainer role in that one. Uh, movie that actually has pretty good reviews, pretty good scores. I mean, Madonna is unreal hot in that movie, so that that, that alone is worth the watch. I was surprised when I did the, my numbers on this. The critics were 84 and the fans were 62. I would have thought the fans of this movie would have been high. Yeah, I watched it and I was, I was kind of shocked that the ratings were so high across the board. I thought it was like middle of the road, but people seem to really like it's the the approach to it. People love Madonna, I guess. He's a hell of a magic show MC. Credit where credit is <laughs> He's due. A, you know, I give him credit. It wasn't distracting. I think he seemed to do like the carnival barker thing pretty well. But the f- the first major role we were going to do was to live and die in LA. But case we couldn't find it like anywhere, right? It's not rentable. It's not. I was going to have to travel to Columbia in order to watch it. I just didn't have time. And just so we're all aware, that's not like Columbia, Indiana. That's uh, that's in South America. <laughs> have to travel to a different continent to see that. So unfortunately, um, that's a movie that with Willem Dafoe that we've talked about before that I think would have been fun to talk about, but we didn't yeah. just didn't have the chance to do it. It's a good movie. We're going to talk about his role as Willie in Gung Ho from 1986, his first major role in Case Has It. This was an interesting watch because I've seen it several times in my life when I was younger, and this is the first time I've watched it since you know, being an adult and, and having more films under my belt. So it was interesting to watch. He plays one of the, the four or five kind of um, disgruntled employees at this um, car plant. Well, the movie's headlined by, by Michael Keaton, and this is in 86 when Michael Keaton is at the peak of his charisma and performances. And he just, uh, to me, he kills it this movie. He's great. Ron Howard directed this movie. It's got a lot of very familiar faces, including our boy Clint Howard, which is a popular name to bring up whatever we cannot hear. What happens in this movie is... Michael Keaton is basically tasked with saving the car plant in this town because it's literally the only thing keeping the economy in this town together. And he is the hometown kid. He's got all these stories about winning the state tournament, all this stuff. And, and it's, it's that stereotypical guy that never left and, and really holds things together for his hometown. And so he goes to Japan to try to get this company to start building their cars in their plant. Ultimately, the, the Japanese company come over to take over the plant and they start making their cars out of their plant. It's just it's a story about, you know, clash of cultures and how these two different cultures are going to work together with the culture culture that people grew up with and the differences in the work cultures that they employed. Wasn't sure how well it was going to hold up because, again, this is 86. It's a real satirical movie on both sides where they're making fun of. American culture and American workers 
as much as they're making fun of the Japanese culture and the Japanese business. So I, I was a little bit apprehensive and, and I was ready to tell you guys that, man, this movie does not hold up. There are certain parts that don't. But overall, it, it, uh, it was a really fun rewatch. Totoro plays one of the f- four or five uh, disgruntled workers, and he's, he's good in it. Again, it's a, it's a Michael Keaton film, but anytime Totoro's in it, you know, you feel good about his performance, and, and he does well in it. Pretty big role compared to what I thought it was going to be. How young does he look? Because he's, what, 29 at the time? He looks actually a little older than 29 in this movie. Really? Okay. He pulls off the manufacturing plant worker pretty well. Okay. I'm going to watch it again now. You got me jacked up. There you go, man. Yeah, I'd, I'd watch it. Yeah, I, I would recommend. If you haven't seen it, it's it's a good watch, especially if, if you appreciate Michael Keaton's career. He's unbelievably funny in this movie. Well, that's first major role. Even though we couldn't get our hands on To Live and Die in L.A., I think Gung Ho is a pretty sufficient replacement. It's only a year later, so it works out pretty nicely. Sure. Let's dig into kind of the meat. This is where his career starts to pick up a little bit. Um, first and foremost, 1986, he does a Woody Allen picture, Hannah and Her Sisters played a writer in that film. If Rigby was here, I'm sure he would have all of his Woody Allen contributions to give. We talked about Pool Hall Junkies last week on the, uh, mm-hmm. the Chaz Palminteri episode. So, And I remember um, Mark had mentioned The Color of Money. Yep. Well, John Turturro was in The Color of Money. He played Julian, a movie that I had never seen before. I watched for the first time. I felt like it was like a, in some ways, a less funnier kingpin, but for Pool. That's a good, that's a damn good movie. Yeah, Tom Cruise, mm-hmm. Paul Newman, very similar to Pool All Junkies. Pool All Junkies definitely ran after this movie walk. There's a line in this movie I actually requote all the time that it's uh, there's a difference between excellent pool and pool excellent. And that's what uh, Newman is trying to get Tom Cruise to understand when he's teaching him the bigger game of pool than just the, the small game that he's trying to win at. Turturro just kind of plays one of the, uh, the other pool players early on in the movie and uh, is one of the compet one of his competitors, but he's he doesn't get a ton of screen time in this film. Something tells me he looks good playing pool though. Eighty seven, there was a he's got a big role as Heinz in Five Corners, a movie where he murders Penguin <laughs> alongside Jodie Foster. Tim Robbins got an ISA nom for his role, um, and from what I read, is the role that kind of put him on Spike Lee's radar um, before he did do the right thing a couple of years later. Yeah, I didn't watch the penguin scene because I didn't want to watch that. But I did watch the movie, and I was impressed. Uh, one, it looks like it's shot with like a really small budget, mm-hmm. despite kind of being a period piece. Because I think it's filmed in like it's supposed to be in like the fifties or the sixties. But I thought Totoro was. Gr- I actually thought all three of the main leading actors were great. I thought Jodie Foster was, Tim Robbins, Totoro. I thought were awesome. I think he also was like great at playing like the angry and menacing looking guy because he grew up in that air, uh, that area. So he probably had a lot of people that he could like base that character off of, you know, the stalker that kind of is just looking and itching to get into a fight with anybody. I agree completely. I think he's da- damn good as a, just a creepy maniacal, just insane person in this movie. And then you meet his mom and you're like, all right, I kind of see why he's like this. <laughs> His mom's not all there, and no. you, you kind of get a background on the character. You know, it's not a movie that I think a lot of people talk about, but it's clearly one that was big for his career because it led to some some pretty pretty big stepping stones for taking on some other roles. Between Five Corners and then the next movie we're going to talk about, he did his first recurring role on television uh, in The Fortunate Pilgrim, played Larry. Three episodes of that. Um, but the big one I mentioned before was his first of nine films with St- Spike Lee, 
because of five corners, he was in Do the Right Thing. He played P- Pino. He's actually been in more Spike Lee movies than any other actor. Really cool. I believe that wholeheartedly. Do the Right Thing is great and should have won more awards than it did. I'm not a huge fan of all Spike Lee movies. I feel like sometimes his style can be purposely a little jarring. Um, but when his movies do click, I think they're awesome. And I think this is, uh, I don't know if I'd say it's my favorite, but it's definitely his most uh, well-received. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're going to talk about some other Spike Lee films that are on the exact opposite end of the spectrum, James. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We've got the good spectrum with Spike Lee and John Turturro. That's for sure. So in this, uh, he works at a pizzeria. It all takes place in the course of a day. And it's interesting how this movie is in like, what, 1989? 1989. And the story that they're telling is the same story that plays out today. A pizzeria that's in a primarily black neighborhood. And an argument breaks out about uh, how come on the wall of fame in the pizzeria, it's only Italians. And one of the guys who lives in the area essentially is like, you're in a black neighborhood and there's no famous black people you could put up on this wall. And it just gets more and more racial and more and more heated as the day goes on. And it eventually ends in one of the characters being uh, killed by a cop. And at that time, that story being put on, on a screen was so controversial that people were like, protesting potentially this movie coming out because you know oh it's going to lead to race riots like those things weren't already going on and so this like led to spike lee like blowing up in fame where it was people shunning him but then other people being like yeah but this movie's great like this is this is a great director and this movie is great and it was nominated for uh one academy award i a couple i'm not exactly sure uh but it definitely announced uh, Spike Lee's arrival on the scene. And I thought Totoro was great in it. He, he's been quoted many times being like, I grew up in a primarily black neighborhood and then my family moved and I was in a primarily white neighborhood and I saw the racial divides. And so he's like, it was really easy for me to pull on this. And when Spike Lee realized that we grew up in the same neighborhoods, it was like a match made in heaven. They kind of just saw that they understood what each other was going for. I've always thought of him as pretty authentic, whether I like his work or not. I've always found him a very authentic. I just appreciate that. And it seems in that business, in that industry, it's pretty easy for people to kind of fall off their path. And he's done a pretty good job of sticking to his guns. I've met Spike Lee twice. Oh, that's That's right. right. That's right. And he's my first Instagram picture. And he was really pleasant both times and dressed head to toe in Knicks gear both times. Like the man is such a diehard fan. He's, he's wearing Knicks gear at a party. He's wearing Knicks gear at the airport. He's always got on Knicks gear. Well, the next time you talk to him, tell him I said good things about him. I will. <laughs> oh, Craig. <laughs> My boy, Craig. He's like, I know Craig. We hit, we've hit a decent number of Spike Lee films on the pod over six episodes, but by golly, we're going to clean up a bunch of his filmography today. Oh, yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. Speaking of, his next movie, Mo Better Blues, 1990, another Spike Lee feature, uh, a year later. So right out of the gate, Spike says, you're coming in for my next one. I didn't get a chance to watch it. It had pretty good reviews. I'm kind of sad I didn't get a chance to watch it. So was, wasn't some of this kind of like your life growing up? A jazz trumpeter makes questionable decisions in his professional and romantic life. 
I just, I've been waiting for Dames to start busting in the I know his, his life story, story in the movies like he did last time. Yeah, Dames, isn't this your story? You had me at I was born a poor black child. <laughs> <laughs> the cast, the rest of the cast in this movie: Wesley Snipes, Denzel Washington, Giancarlo Esposito. I mean, that's some some spicy actors. And Nicholas Totoro, Samuel L. Jackson, Charlie Murphy's in this. Jesus, I did see for good or for bad. Catch fire slash backtrack, depending on where you find it and where it's streaming, called both both names. Um, it's a Dennis Hopper directed film where Dennis Hopper essentially is a hitman who kidnaps Jodie Foster and then decides he's going to keep her basically as his like s- slave wife instead of killing her and puts himself on the line. Oh, good grief! Yeah, it's something. Uh, Turturro plays like a henchman in the movie alongside Joe Pesci. Um, movies that have multiple Titles usually aren't good because that's somebody deciding that they need to remarket the movie in a completely different way. And I don't think this one is much different from that at all. Totoro said working with Dennis Hopper was the way he described it was very polite because actors have to be polite and they have to be cautious with how they describe people they might work with in the future. But when he described it, it's essentially like Dennis Hopper every day on set is just battling demons within himself, but out loud where he's like, this shot fucking sucks. He's like, Oh, this fucking terrible. And, like, and he's like, I don't fucking care. He's like, do whatever the fuck you want. He's like, just cursing at him the whole time. He's like, no, dude, you're the director. I want to do what you want. He's like, no, John, I don't fucking care. Do what you want. He's like, well, my idea sucks. <laughs> and, and he's like, Joe Pesci thought it was great. He's like, I was very confused. <laughs> <laughs> Dennis Hopper. Kyle, I was I was going to ask you if he directed this movie like he acted, and I the answer is definitely yes. Yeah, he's a little high strung. He's a little high strung. <laughs> no. Well, I don't think the apple far, falls far from the tree on that one, Grace. No. Rigby's not here yet, so I, I want to save some Miller's Crossing conversation for when he does get here. I'm going to cue that back up for him because I know he loves Miller's Crossing, and we know Whit- Warren's not here, and he doesn't like Miller's Crossing. It's one of the most salient disagreements in Munson's history between two people. I, I really like Miller's Crossing, and he plays Bernie Birnbaum, who is in that iconic scene where Gabe Byrne doesn't shoot him uh, in the back head and lets him go. Um, it's it's a, that iconic out-in-the-woods scene. So that was a Coen Brothers movie, and so he goes on a little bit of a run with Coen Brothers. Um, he's in 1991. He's the lead. Barton Fink, he plays Barton Fink, um, a movie that got him a Best Actor um, award at, at the Cannes Film Festival. A very weird, yeah, odd Coen Brothers film. I haven't seen it recently, but I, I think this is an important role for him. And he's the lead of this one. This might be his first lead role, right? Well, that and, you know, if we think back to our boy Chaz, really got typecasted into law enforcement or, you know, Italian thug or whatever it is, right? Gangster. This character is weird. <laughs> and... It does not fit the stereotypes of anything he's played before this. Doing well in this role probably opened a lot of doors for him moving down the road. Because up until this point, I mean, a lot of his roles have just been the tough guy. Yep. You know, the menacing character. Now he's opened up a lot of doors to kind of play different roles as he moves throughout his career. I know the movie got a lot of flack because of its ambiguous ending, but John Goodman, I think, is incredible in the movie. He's incredible in everything, man. He really is. I mean, these are two actors that the Coens love to work with, Richard Charles and John Goodman. Yes. And I think that that character, and you guys can tell me if you think I'm wrong, Barton Fink is such a neurotic, like, just unconfident character. And I think Turturro does that character pretty well. You see it a couple different times in his career. 
And it, so I think he nailed this one. Mm-hmm. Like whatever issues the movie people have with the movie, I don't think have anything to do with Turturro's character and how he plays the role. No way. Agreed. In order for a movie to be must-see for me, like it's a ranked 85 and above, that one, uh, Miller's Crossing both are above the 85 mark on my list. I'm I'd love to hear that. Six of the ones that I have listed that uh, are must-sees, and those are two of them. So I'm a mark for the Coen brothers, too. I just... Mm-hmm. <laughs> So is yeah. Ruby. He's a huge fan. I really like both of these movies. I think Mil- Miller's Crossing, especially the Carter Burwell um, score in that film, is gorgeous too. Absolutely gorgeous. But that's a big one. I I think to Case's point, first real lead role, mm-hmm. right? He'd been playing a supporting character or a baddie or something in most of the stuff he'd done up to this point. But this is the first chance he had to really be the lead in a picture. Back on the Spike Lee train in '91 with Jungle Fever, played Paulie. Wasn't I going to review this for the? Halle Berry episode, but we weren't able to find it, correct? Yep, you're right. I totally forgot that Halle Berry was in it because we couldn't find it. Well, speaking of movies that we couldn't find, the audience gap for this episode was supposed to be brain donors. Rigby was trying to cover that. Pretty significant audience gap. It's like 46 or 47 points. But another one of those films we could not find. Like, it's just not streaming anywhere right now, unfortunately. And it sounds like kind of a shit show of a movie. So it was I was hoping we'd be able to talk about it, but can't get our hands on it right now instead. Brain donors pulled in a cool 918,000. Yeah, audiences seem to really like it, but critics fucking hated it. So it's maybe for another episode if it gets dug up from the grave. Yeah. 92 is a big year for him because he also directs his first picture. So he's directed a bunch over the years. The first one he directed was Mac. uh, And he was the director, the screenwriter, and played a character in the movie. And from what I understood, it actually won some awards on the like film festival circuit as well. So it, it was it from everything I read, it was a pretty decent directing debut. The cool fact I have from this is that his 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 teacher is actually casted in this role uh, in this movie from school, and he actually starred in like six other movies with him. His teacher plays his dad in this, Joe Paparone. That's cool. Yeah, really. So he's about. 10 years in to his career at this point in the industry. Yeah. 12 years and in. He's him. writing, directing, and starring in a movie. That's pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But a movie I did watch was the highest critic score, mm-hmm. which is Quiz Show from 1994. That was my review. And I know Rigby was very excited about me getting a chance to watch this. I had never seen this before. So this was new to me. I didn't know anything about this story. Like last episode, I had never seen a Bronx Tale or Bullets Over Broadway. So this was a crossing a huge one off my list, too. Stemple. I know. I'm. I'm. I was very excited because the the ratings got like a 92 Metascore, 96 on Rotten Tomatoes. It's beloved across the board. It was directed by Robert Redford. It's based on the Dick Goodwin memoir. Um, who was a he was a congressional lawyer who investigated the 21 game show that was fixed by producers. So the idea is they uh they were picking and choosing who they wanted to win, feeding some questions. Um, to who they thought was most marketable to the uh, to the American audience, so that way they could continue to rake in the dollars from advertisers and other folks, um, essentially lying to the American public. Um, the movie itself was nominated for four Oscars. Um, Turturro was not one of those Oscar nominees, but it did get nominated for Best Picture, Best Supporting Actor by Paul Schofield, who is the director for Redford, and then the the adapted screenplay. Pretty cool cast. We've got our boy Rafe Fiennes. Hank Azaria, Shooter McGavin, a.k.a. Christopher McDonald, plays the uh, game show host. 
um, Schofield, David Paymer, who I actually thought was the best actor in the movie. I think Paymer does the best job in terms of the characters. Bruce Altman's in it. Oh, yeah. He's so slimy. He's so slimy. I think it, and the way he commits, I really liked it. Um, Martin Scorsese actually plays a pretty significant acting role in this as well. So that was interesting to see him do that. I know he's done it a bunch, but it's usually smaller, like one-off scenes. He actually plays a more primary role in this as, um, as the head of the marketing company that, that partners with them. Um, and then John Turturro, obviously. He plays Herb Stemple, a cocky slash nerdy con- contestant on the show who gets screwed over by the producers. Um, or as Azaria refers to him in the movie, an annoying Jewish guy with a sideball haircut. <laughs> Anti-Semitism is just flourishes throughout this movie. Because it, it's a true story from the 50s, correct? Yep, yep from the 50s. There you go. Yeah, they, they, Redford and company certainly uh, represented that one pretty clearly. Um, he's got this creepy discolored tooth that just punches you in the face every time you see it, too. And you're like, ah, oh, now I know why they don't want to put you on TV, because that is ugly, bro. But they basically, in the movie, they, they collude against Turturro's character to get an answer wrong because the producers feel that Van, Van Dorn, played by Fiennes, is is, uh, is more marketable. Um, and basically, the rest of the story is about uh, Van the rise of Van Doren and how disgruntled Stemple is for getting the shaft takes the legal route, gets the congressional investigators involved. Uh, and I think what sells it is Turturro playing this role. He's super neurotic. He is not a reliable witness. And so it just makes it a mess because he's kind of vindictive. Uh, and he's, he's definitely a know-it-all and certainly has done some shady shit. Um, before he ends up in this position that he's in. The film explores these really murky ethical dilemmas involving these individuals, and I think it it Redford does it pretty thoroughly and pretty convincingly. Like the whole Charles Van Doren being a professor, taking the money when he really shouldn't, and then his dad, the family legacy, like all that is really fascinating to watch. I agree. I I, I like the relationship between the father and the son where like the son is super successful on this game show. And like the dad still like half doesn't give a shit. Not at all. Yeah. It's like, I think there's a line where, uh, cause they're both professors and they share an office and his dad's like, I never see you in the office. He's like, yeah, dad, it's cause I'm, I'm tucked away behind your legacy in there. <laughs> it's like, he's like, I'm just walking in your shadow nonstop every day. I love Totoro though in this. I think he's great. Like you could tell he feels slighted. And so he's like, no, I'm going to get this guy. But like, you're right. He's not, you know, it's not a good versus evil kind of scenario. He's like, no, I'm also not a great person either. Like I also kind of cheated, but like, you know, they're fucking me over and they're giving him what I deserve. And it's just, it's very nuanced. And I think it's really well done. But he got SAG and Golden Globe now. So this, I think is his most like, celebrated award role but those are just knobs he didn't win unfortunately john Turturro said herbie stemple made himself readily available he's like i got to meet that guy 10 20 times i knew everything about him mimicked his mannerisms how he spoke the whole deal he also hosted saturday night live in conjunction with this promoting this movie oh did he okay The, the opening monologue they do a pretty funny skit spinning off of the game show where they put them in a box and they've got headphones on them and they're asking them questions. And it's, it's not funny, but it's entertaining. 
The funniest part about his appearance on that Saturday Night Live episode is they have a running gag throughout the entire episode of these two dentists that are making commercials, and they're making it about the other person, like, <laughs> accusing him of not cleaning their tools and, you know, <laughs> just different shit. And it's really funny. Totoro is funny, man. Like, I, he plays... He plays a lot of serious roles, but he cracks me up. Like, when he wants to, he has the comedic timing. Oh, absolutely. Oh, for sure. Oh, he can play fucking oddball characters with the best of them. I love that he just gets so hung up on the question they want him to get wrong. Marty? Yeah, he's like, <laughs> he's like I saw Marty three times in theaters. It was my favorite movie. You don't think I know it's Marty? It's like <laughs> the best picture from two years ago. You think I won't get that right? It's like, I saw it with my family and friends. They all know I know this. On the waterfront. Eight more years until our next review, and we've got another Spike Lee movie, Clockers, 95, played Detective Mazzilli. Um, 96, though, seems to be the year of Sam Rockwell in Torturo's life. He was in Box of Moonlight, a, mo- a role that got him an ISA nom, Independent Spirit Award nom, alongside Sam Rockwell, who spends most of the movie in a uh, Davy Crockett hat. And then the, the, the weird one that Case talked about the box from the box office side, uh, he played Disco Bean in The Search for One-Eyed Jimmy, another Rockwell pitcher. Rockwell plays One-Eyed Jimmy. Like, there's just this random scene where they pull up to this uh, warehouse, and he's, he plays this character, Disco Bean. He's just in the middle of the warehouse doing disco with no one else around, like kind of breakdancing, but just hanging out. And they're trying to get information from him, and he's by himself in the middle of a warehouse doing disco, and it is so fucking good. And uh, I just remember... He's got the moves? He's got the moves. I just remember it blew me away when I watched it for the Rockwell episode, because I was like... I love it. Who the fuck needs to be doing disco in this movie? It doesn't make any sense at all. But John Turturro fucking sells it, man. He sells it so well. He's a good dancer. You know, maybe that's how you get jobs. That's how you get into Hollywood, James. You just gotta be a good dancer. You'll get there. (laughs) Everybody from that region in Italy is a good dancer. That's what I've been told. I was going to say, man. All in the hips. What I lack in talent, I make up for in enthusiasm. So I'm I'm not a good dancer, but I'm a confident one. There you go. Rounders, 1998, played Joey. Alongside our boy, Matt Damon. I love Rounders, man. It's fun. What sucks about Rounders is it's turned into one of those movies where I dislike most of the people who like it. And that sucks for me. Like, it's like in the, the Fight Club, where it's like, oh, this movie rocks, and then, then you meet other people who like it, and you're like, oh, but you kind of suck. And that's what's happened with Rounders as well. Is this the movie where he eats the Oreos when he's playing? No, that's Malkovich, but yeah, same movie, though. Oh, okay, same movie, though, okay. Yeah, Malkovich with his Russian accent. Pay that man his money. I'll give Turturro credit, I just thought about this. So he, he hit the pantheon of non-athletic sports movies oh shit yep so he did the color of money so he did a pool movie he did rounders so he did poker and then he does the big lebowski so he does bowling there you so go he's done all the <laughs> okay. big, big non-athlete athletic sport movies he's missing golf well he missed his opportunity with sandler <laughs> for golf well, let's talk about the jesus and big lebowski alongside philip seymour hoffman the jesus the fucking jesus man if i'm not paying attention it's because i'm mesmerized by his dancing scene as Disco Bean. <laughs> You're watching that right now? Yeah, dude. The dude's got some moves. And I completely spaced out how many huge stars are in that movie. Yeah, there is. 100%. Shit, Samuel Jackson's in that movie. Yeah, he plays like a Vietnam vet or whatever. Taro's got the moves, man. I'm 
I'm, I'm going to learn some of these tonight. So I think his final words should be that scene from Big Lebowski where he talks about I'll shove the gun up your ass and pull the trigger until it goes click. <laughs> uh, he's like, Jesus. He goes, that's right. No, I fucked up with the Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> it's so fucking good. I read the Coens. We're just like, we're going to give you a part. It's not a huge one. Just make it your own. And so he just took it and fucking went with it. He, he rules. Yeah, it's such a funny side character. Is it appropriate to bring up a later movie that is related to that movie? Yeah, yeah. let's talk about the Jesus rolls, if that's what you want to get into. I was 15 minutes into that movie, and they had already used every line and every trope from the Big Lebowski's. <laughs> they used, don't fuck with the Jesus. They showed the eight-year-old that he revealed himself to, which was makes the Big Lebowski even funnier. <laughs> that is just he had a urinal. Like the way Walter describes it, he's like, he exposed himself to eight-year-olds, dude. <laughs> and he's like, he just looked somewhere at his dick. He's like, that's a huge dick. And he's like, mm. <laughs> it was not yeah, that he did wrong, which no. he did plenty wrong in that movie. Yes. Did you enjoy the threesome between him and Bobby mm-hmm. Cannavale and Susan Sarandon? Oh, was that I part fun for you? I'm going to admit this. I have a major crush on Susan Sarandon. Yes. I really do. She's stunning. You're amongst your peers. <laughs> yeah. Yes, you are. In the weirdest way, because she's just a plain lady. But my God, she is. She's gorgeous. There's like a sensuality to her, man. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is. Yep. And I, I tried to describe her character in that movie to the guys on this random episode. And I was like, so she has the threesome and then she immediately kills herself. Here, here, you, go, like, here you go. And oh, she yeah. gives you the hint that there's a chance. <laughs> and then she kills herself after. On the Big Lebowski, um, Totoro said that the scene where he rolls a strike and then dances in slow motion, the Coen brothers didn't tell him what to do or what music was going to play or anything. They just said, just dance after it. And he's like, well, dance like what? And like, whatever you want. He's like, what if I do like a Muhammad Ali thing? And like, yeah, sure, whatever. And so he does that little shimmy. And he's like, and then when I watched the scene and I saw the music they chose, I was so embarrassed. He's like, I hated it. He's like, I was so embarrassed. <laughs> but he's like, I get they pay me a lot of money, the Coens, so I guess I guess it's fine. Right. I mean, it's also a great role. It's so I think it's hysterical. I think just when you're it is the butt of the joke in the joke, like it's probably a little embarrassing to see. Yeah. It's it's certainly a character that most I think most average people would recognize him for, for sure. No question. For as short as a role as it is, it is epic. It's memorable. Actually, The Big Lebowski is his highest ranked film for me. I have that as a 94 on my all-time list. Mm. Oh, it's it's a classic. I think his character was so unique that it got a he got his own movie 21 years later. You know what I mean? Like that that's pretty cool. Yeah. So it's part of the uh, BLCU. Big Lebowski Cinematic Universe? Yes. <laughs> What's next? Is the Don, is Donnie getting his own picture next? Is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> no, nah, dude, he'd be completely out of his element. That's true. Fully out of your element, Donnie. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so he got game, another Spike Lee movie, 1998, played Coach Sunday. Does he only have one scene in this movie? That I'm not sure. When I watched this movie, I was it was when it came out. And uh, I was definitely caught off guard by a lot of the scenes. Uh-huh. Um, and so all I remember was I didn't understand how he was getting recruited with hookers. Like, I totally couldn't wrap my head around that. 
And I was like, wait, colleges are doing what to basketball players? I don't, what is going on here? It's like someone doesn't just want to play for the love of the game. What's happening? <laughs> I remember Totoro in this movie playing the coach and giving him a jersey or something. And I think Rick Fox was showing him around campus and they ran into, I don't remember exactly, but. Every episode, I usually have one DNF. And unfortunately, my DNF for Totoro was one of the pictures that he directed, and that's Illuminata. He plays a character he produced, directed alongside Susan Sarandon. It's like a movie about, it's in the theater, it's very showy, <laughs> and I couldn't, I couldn't finish it, guys. I'm sorry. Your summary of it is, uh, is indicative that you couldn't watch this movie. I, I tried, man. I really tried. people in it, they're, they're, they're in a place. A turn of the... 20th century theater repertory company rejects the latest project of their beloved playwright Tuccio, picking off a saga of intrigue surrounding the influential critic Bevilacqua and star Salamene. That sounds enthralling. It's fucking not. So you didn't like it? I didn't like it, yeah. I don't know if you could parse through that for, for my direct review, but yes, I did, did not love it, unfortunately. I don't know that you get to say that if you didn't finish it. Fair point. I know. Yeah, it really all comes together in the third act, Kyle. <laughs> None of you watched it, right? Oh, don't be an ass. That's what I thought. <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> but he seems to be working with uh, Sarandon quite a bit at this time, because he did Cradle Will Rock with her in 99 as well. Played Aldo. Another Spike Lee movie in 99, Summer of Sam, played Harvey the Black Dog. Yeah, was that the dog that was talking to, what's his name, telling him to... Correct. Yes, yeah. that is correct. <laughs> Plays a dog. And that's a pretty big role. That's a yeah, pretty big role in that story. It drives the plot, no question. <laughs> <laughs> Kyle, this is his first voiceover work, is what you're saying. I believe so. That's a, that's a great way to put so, it. So, uh, for those of you not familiar, uh, Summer of Sam is based on a true story of a serial killer in the, in the summer of 77. When he is inevitably caught, uh, he tells the police that his dog told him to do it. And so in the movie, that is who Totoro is. He is the dog telling him to kill people. So he's a real villain. That's what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. He's the villain of the story. Understood? Willennium hits. There you go. We talked about Wild Wild West earlier. Willennium. Oh, brother. Oh, brother, where art thou? Plays Pete alongside Holly Hunter. One of his more iconic roles, I think. Do not mm -hmm. seek the treasure. I didn't even realize this was him for the longest time. I think he... He melds into the role so well that you don't even realize it's Turturro. That's a fair point. He slacks that jaw real hard the whole movie. Mm -hmm. When I guess Turturro, you're used to him having that hair and he's bald in this, so that throws you off yeah. to start. This movie blew my fucking dick off, man. It's, it's, <laughs> I love Old Brother, Where Art Thou? It's an 89 on my all-time list. And, I mean, that may seem like a low... It seemed, Now I'm saying it out loud, it seems like a low score just because... Of the brilliance of the film, but and get something out of it. But when you said you, he's unrecognized, I thought that the Jesus character, like if you didn't know that was John Turturro, like yeah, <laughs> I only knew because you know he's been in so many so many other movies. I was like, all right, I know that guy. This movie was a cultural phenomenon. I mean, everybody picked up on something about this movie, and that damn song was everywhere. There wasn't a talent show in constant or Halloween costume that wasn't from Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? This is a good fucking song. I don't know. I, I stopped listening to it about uh, 2001. This is also when Clooney was at like his 
peak of his rise to fame. Like this was, mm-hmm. yeah. Where even after like Batman, people were like, "Oh no, dude, we don't care. We like that movie stunk, but he's still the man. Like we love yep. him." All right, last movie we'll talk about before we get into audience gap is the losing illusion defense. Losing defense. I forget how you pronounce. It. Um, but he plays. He plays the lead character in this role where he plays a chess nerd. So I believe based on a true story. But a a chess champion who has some mental health issues. But again, I think another example of him playing just a really oddball character, clearly able to take on something very unique and not necessarily in his lane of of the roles that he would normally play, like Chaz stand in his lane to really only do a couple different things. It takes a hell of a screenwriter to turn a chess strategy into a movie. It's a decent movie. Yeah, dude, there's got to be so much fucking drama in this, like, world, because, like, there's TV shows, there's movies, and they're all, like, real serious dramas. Yeah, got a 64 Metascore. It's got pretty good reviews overall, too. It's a decent film. I really wish I knew some chess verbiage, because I would throw it in here and talk about how good he is at kinging or crowning or whatever. Checkmating. He's fucking great at checkmating people. That's what I like, learned from this yeah, movie. They castled the fuck out of them. <laughs> I would say for those who who are Turturro fans, that if you haven't seen Losing Defense, that's I think that's one to go out of your way to watch to see him do something a little bit different. Since Rigby's not here, the audience gap I believe was thirty seven points for Mister Deeds, so that was fifty nine twenty two. So even the Audiences didn't love Mr. Deeds. Yeah. Critics really hated it. Adam Sandler plays Longfellow Deeds, who's great uncle. He's like the last living relative from his great uncle who died with this huge fortune, lives in this small town in what New Hampshire, and uh, essentially finds out he's given this huge fortune and has to come to New York to sign some papers. And along the way, meets a colorful cast of characters, um, including John Turturro. Uh, character as Emilio, the caretaker butler of his great uncle's um, estate. Very sneaky, sir. I think this movie holds up in terms of the Sandler movies. I think when this movie came out, it was was almost too normal. The Sandler role was almost too normal for people. I think people probably like it more now than they did then. That's my opinion, at least, I should say. I, I like it more now than I did then. I was ready to give up on it, and I was like, oh, actually, this movie made me laugh. I thought... Mr. Deeds was very funny. Um, I think uh, there's so many good bits in it, and I think Totoro is one of the best bits. I think mm-hmm. h- him just randomly appearing and being creepy is so fucking funny. He's like, he's like, I gotta put like a bell on you or something. <laughs> he's like, I don't know, how, like, I don't know how you got in. <laughs> that whole scene where he's talking about how his foot has frostbite. Oh, he's like, no, you can hit it. Just go ahead. You know you want to. And he's so uncomfortable. Yeah, the hideousness of that foot will haunt my dreams forever. <laughs> he goes, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've heard that before. I am very sneaky, sir. One of my favorite uh, lines in this, because Sandler is uh, a Jets fan, and he seems to always find a way to shoehorn the Jets into random roles. So when he finds out he owns the Jets, he goes, I own the uh-huh. Jets? And they go, yeah. He goes, that sucks. That's that sucks. So, so fucking funny. He 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 wrote it into Big Daddy too. It's like, what are you watching? He goes, the goddamn Jets. Goddamn Jets. <laughs> this year's ground control to major. That's where a lot of probably young kids learned about fucking David Bowie in that movie. Watching that stupid movie. It's nothing game changing, but 
I agree with you. His uh, his character of um, Emilio is really fun. You guys are giving all the reasons why I fucking hate this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I call Mr. Deeds shitty Billy Madison, and I fucking hate Billy Madison. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of similar. I can see that. That is my father. That is my money. But none of it's Totoro's fault. He is the he is one of the high points in the film. The I, I think he's the high point. He's hundred percent the high point. The best part of the movie. You've under mess, underestimated the sneakiness, sir. Two thousand three to twenty fourteen, um, another Sandler movie. He's uh, he plays Chuck in Anger Management alongside Luis Guzman, one of the guys in the uh, the, the support group. Who's he's a very angry character, from what I remember. Very angry. Funny uh, anger management story. My first job out of college, I didn't realize you couldn't treat company emails like group chats. Someone at work like made a minor fuck up on something, and it was like you know it was gonna be fine, but it was like just enough of a minor fuck up to like slow things down for that day. And I sent the clip of the guy saying you gotta dunk that shit, and I was like, oh, you gotta fucking dunk that shit. And my boss fucking roasted me in front of everyone. He's like, don't you ever ever talk like that. And on company emails, like. My bad, man. I'm just, you know, catching, trying to catch a vibe here at work, and it looks like I, I'm a little off, and I apologize. <laughs> really funny. <laughs> James, you should have said, you think you're better than me? Because you have both your nuts? You think you're better than me? <laughs> I know Rigby loves that fucking line, so I'm sad he's not here for that. He's great in these comedic roles of just leaning into it. That's a Dude, he gets so deep into these, like, absurd characters, and it's so fucking funny. Yes, this is this is a man classically trained from an Ivy League school, and he's doing fucking dick jokes, and it's so fucking fun. <laughs> yeah, he's he gets some bonus points for me because of how his comedic timing and anger management. He's so good as the just fucking ready to pop off anger guy in this movie. Right, a movie that Rigby almost covered as well was Secret Window. Oh, yeah, it's got terrible critic review. Fuck the critics, I love that film. Really? No. I mean, what is it? probably a 99, right? I have it as a 79. R- Rigby said it's a decent film. That's what he told me. I haven't seen it, so I, I can't speak one way or the other. Actually, 79 is pretty passable. That has made me change my mind on things. He's the baddie, right? He's the bad guy in this movie, isn't he? Is it great? I, it's very entertaining. You don't know what's going to happen. It's super entertaining. Johnny Depp is is great in it also. I don't know, two brilliant actors going against each other mm-hmm. in in a weird way. And it's just, I, there's something fascinating about it. For me, like, 75 and above on my list is like, you got to see it in a theater. The, the premise of the story is Johnny Depp is a writer who's going through divorce and living in his alternate house where he does all of his writing. And uh, John Turturro shows up one day and says, you plagiarized my story in this magazine. He's like, I wrote this fucking story. Yeah. And he's like, I did. He's like, I did. He's like, so he's calling his agent. And he's like, do you have a record of that story? He's like, I don't remember when I wrote it. But he's like, I know that you would have records. Of and this whole time, he's just like, are you going to, are you going to cop to the fact that you stole my story? And he's like, I didn't steal your fucking story. So this whole, he's like, I'll kill your dog. <laughs> like, there's just all, it's, it's crazy, man. Yeah. He talks about going to see his wife and shit, right? Like. I think I saw some clips from it. Yeah. If you haven't seen it, it's worth it's worth a watch for sure. And it is a very unique and appropriate accent he's got. 
I agree. That's a good movie. Showing off some more tools, though. That's what it is. I mean, that's what we're here to do. Diagnose and talk about all the different tools he's bringing to the game. And clearly, Torturo has a lot to play with here. So he gets an Emmy win in 2004. Uh, and 2004 and 2008 appeared on Monk in two different episodes as uh, Tony Shalhoub's estranged brother. So one of those awards that Warren hates, the whole guest Emmy for one episode. Uh, but won the award for it, so that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And then another Spike Lee film in 2004, She Hate Me, the one we talked about on Anthony Mackie episode, Batshit Crazy, where Kerry Washington basically pimps out Anthony Mackie to a bunch of women, and he yeah. impregnates all these women, has all these little spermies with his face on it. It's fucking, it's like a psychedelic experience. I have no idea, nor do I remember John Turturro's role in the movie at all because I was so entranced by everything else that was going on in this film when I watched it a couple of months ago on that episode with Mike Vandevoort. But technically, it would have qualified for audience gap as well. A big audience gap on this one. Back on the theater side in 05, he got a Best Actor in a Play Drama Desk Award for his role in The Sound of Naples. So just showing that he's continuing to do some of that theater work and do it and getting recognized for it. Back in the director's chair in 05 in Romance and Cigarettes, Direct and wrote that picture, another movie of Susan Sarandon, his fourth, I believe, in his career. So he's worked with her quite a bit. And yet they've never done a Spike Lee movie together. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think she's on Spike Lee's radar, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think she's on the, on the rotation. This is not one I saw, so I can't speak to his directing acumen on this one. But I didn't watch it for either this or the Sarandon episode, personally. He uh, directed in the movie that I cover, so I can speak a little bit to it there, but I did not see this either. Good Shepherd, alongside Angelina Jolie, played Ray in 2006. The big one there in 07 is he went into kind of the blockbuster side of things in Transformers. Uh, played Agent Simmons, a role that he reprised at least three other times in three other Transformer movies. How the fuck do these movies get made? Okay, first of all, <laughs> Armageddon is a three on my list. Fuck Michael Bay. He's the worst director in the history of film. Transformers is a 24 on my list. I couldn't even, I couldn't even make it through it, dude. Ooh. Because it's nothing I care about. Like, mm-hmm. make movies about shit I care about. Fucking make a good movie. I laugh more at Transformers than anything. For example, one of the scenes where... Uh, Megan Fox is like, she's like, if if, if they're such uh, complex robots, how come he keeps turning back into this piece of shit Camaro? And then the car pops him out real quick. And he's like, dude, he's like, the car's sensitive. You can't talk to him like that. Like he fucking knows. Ten minutes, he's getting chased by the car and didn't know why. Yeah, right. He's like, the car's sensitive. And then he like, it just so happens that five feet away, and where they are, there's a brand new yellow Camaro that he, he like, scans it. And now he's this new Camaro. He's like, all right, now we can roll. Like, that's just fucking laughable, dude. Like, there's nothing redeeming about Transformers films at all. I can't believe there's five of them. This is why Dames came on, just to shred Transformers to make sure the world knew. My brother said he, he, he wanted me to bring up Transformers as, as a movie that he liked. And I said, fuck you. I know he was kidding. <laughs> I'd like to give a shout out for his performance in the Transformers. And I said, I plan to roast that film pretty hard. <laughs> and he goes, all right, quiz show then. <laughs> I was like, 
<laughs> to answer your question objectively, in these three movies alone, there's 2.4 billion reasons why they're making these movies. Oh, my God. I mean, okay, he got my money the first time. Yep, I agree. So I needed to see what was going on. After that, I'm like, you fuck you. Uh, again, I'm in the trust tree. I liked the first Transformers. I thought, I, you know, I haven't watched it in probably 10 years, but I thought, like, the graphics were cool. I liked the kind of corniness of the premise. I thought the Michael Bayness of it worked so much so that I went to see the second in theaters and I made it about 10 minutes in before the people I were with were so mad at me for suggesting this movie. <laughs> and it's the scene when they, when they introduced Megan Fox's character and she's bent over the motorcycle. And I was like, Oh, this is a movie for 10 year olds. Oh, I'm so fucking pissed. dude. <laughs> it's like, I was like, this is for like a horny 12-year-old. This isn't for adults. I hate this movie. And so all the Transformers have been bad. Uh, Bumblebee, shockingly good. I enjoyed Bumblebee. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, this movie's not bad because of Totoro's. These movies are bad because Michael Bay just can't be stopped, apparently. No, but I'm going to tell you right now, the reason that his crowd score is so fucking low is because he did three of these. <laughs> I lost a little respect. I was like, dude, I know that we all need to work and have money. Yeah. But don't do that. Don't do that. He did four of them. He did four. He did He did Transformers, Revenge of the Fallen, Dark of the Moon, and Last Night. Which one's the one where he made the robots have uh, racial stereotypes? Is that like the third one where Michael Bay was just running out of ideas? And he's like, what if... Uh, what if we just made these robots piss off everyone? What if we did that? I couldn't tell you, James. I got nothing. Type in Transformers racism. I promise you something pops up immediately. <laughs> Transformers Transformers 2. There you go. Yeah, second one. Yep. So it was the one where everyone was pissed at me for suggesting. Revenge of the Fallen. I don't know. Fuck, fuck Michael Bay. Fuck Transformers. So do we... So clearly, Dames has some thoughts on him taking this role to get the money from the Transformers movies and selling his soul a little bit. Do we like his character as Agent Simmons in these movies? I'm actually the opposite of Dames. This is where, and I'm not a fan of the Transformer movies, but this is where he became one of my favorite actors. Because I'm like, it's, this is an absurd role. And he's an excellent actor who is acting excellently in an absurd role. And I really appreciated that. I know he did some quirky comedies and shit like that before this, but I, I really like that he jumped into this project and, again, performed really well in an absurd role. Yeah. So Totoro uh, explains that when he's coming up with characters, he tries to like, quote unquote, steal mannerisms from people that he knows in his life. And so he based his role of Agent Simmons off of Michael Bay himself. Uh, and, <laughs> and, so, and so he's like, dude, he's like, I'm on set. And Michael Bay is like, oh my God, I love everything you're doing. And Totoro's like, yeah, of course you do. <laughs> like, he's like, I'm pretending to be you. I'm holding up a mirror right now. Also, never met a cliche that I don't like. Yeah, he's like, that, of course you love it. I'm, I'm acting like you. That's fantastic. Yeah. You know how to impress the director on this. But I think, you know what, John? I would do, I would do the same thing. Of course you would. You definitely would. Of course you would, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how to describe his character. It's very... Simmonsy. Well, he's, he's a government agent, and he's just anti... Centric. Yeah, he's, it's, it's, it's just quirky. Accusatory, quirky, a lot of energy. And by the end of the movie, he's balded into trying to help the, the young people out. But 
we don't need to spend any more time on Transformers. It's gonna it's just gonna make us angry. To another movie that was not viewed very favorably by critics uh, or even audiences. You don't mess with the Zohan. He played Phantom, the Zohan's uh, arch enemy in this one. Why did this movie happen? <laughs> It's just such a weird movie. It's a weird movie. Uh, you know, the Zoan just wants to be a hairdresser alongside Emmanuel Kriki. And uh, honestly, you, who wouldn't want to work in hairdressing alongside Emmanuel Kriki? I mean, I would. She's gorgeous. When I watched this movie for the first time, honestly, I thought it was an inside joke with Sandler and all his friends that they could make this movie and people would watch it. And them fuckers laughed all the time. He's probably got an alert on his phone. Every time this movie is played, he gets an alert, and they laugh their ass off every time somebody watches this movie. It's so weird. It's a modern tale about the dangers of a discrimination. Yeah, Come on. Somebody's watching Waterboy? <laughs> yes. Somebody's watching Little Nicky? <laughs> There's two people watching Little Nicky right now. <laughs> Come on. The first Sandler movie where I finally was like, I think I'm out on opening yes. day Sandler movies. Like, I think I gotta wait now. Like, it used to be like, Oh yeah, I'm pumped. I can't wait to go see this. And then after like a couple, I started to slow down. And then after this, is like, nah, no more, no more opening days for me. I'll wait until I see some reviews. I'm a little bit different from you guys. I laugh every time I watch this movie, and it's not because it's good, dude. My boys love this movie. I I laugh. I I find his character as a phantom really entertaining because he's just he's just way over the top. Yes, as a bag. Like they have that that like who. Who deals with pain better in the when they're in the water and he takes a fucking piranha out of the water and shoves it on his neck to show how much he can handle pain? It's just, it's stupid. I got to listen to a closed interview with Dennis Dugan, the director of this. Oh, yeah. It was so wild that he was, he's like, Adam, is this, is this going to work? And Sandler's like, whatever, just enjoy it, man. So he's like, I, I just it, went along for the ride and, and it was, it worked out great. You're not really the director, I feel like, in those, no. <laughs> in those movies, you're just the guy who is in the chair. Yep. Uh, so 2008, uh, he was in another Spike Lee movie called Miracle at St. Anna, played Detective Ricci alongside Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And this is, to James's point, one of those Spike Lee films that I watched for the first time and is so insufferable. I fucking hated it. It's terrible. And has awful reviews. Dude, when, when he hits, they hit. Yeah, but when they don't, they don't. Very, very dumb. Don't recommend it at all. Especially if you like actors like Derek Luke, it's going to sour you on people like him in that movie. Um, taking a Pelham 123, play Caminetti alongside Luis Guzman in 09. Rigby's not here to talk about how much he dislikes this film. That's true. I didn't mind this film. I thought it was entertaining. I like the original as well, but I, I like this movie. Yeah, I thought it was fine. It's watchable, it's, it's fun, and it's paced well, so I, I don't have a problem watching this movie. Rigby does not like it, though. He's made that clear. Yes, he does. A couple other uh, Transformers movies in there between 2009 and 2011. And then we won't even mention the names because we're not going to disrespect the man like that. Cars 2, alongside Bonnie Hunt, played Francesco. So some more voice acting we see there. Cars 2, you know, it's it's up there as one of the worst of the Pixars. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's just like a clear as day, like, your kid's going to buy this lunchbox, right? Money grab. Yeah. Fortunately. You're correct. I got a 3949 fan or critic and fan ranking. Yeah, not great. Mm -mm. Not great, Bob. If you're going to pick a Pixar movie, this wasn't the one to pick. Johnny. Bonnie Hunt is another one of those incredibly sexy actresses to me. He's a fan of the show. Don't worry. She's retweeted us. Yeah. She is a fan of the show. She has responded. Mm -hmm. Maybe one of the few who's actually responded to us on stuff. Fading Gigolo 2013. If you look at his IMDb profile, this is listed in his top four most recognized roles, which... I was like, huh? 
Am I missing something here? Agreed to disagree. I was like, uh, it's a Woody Allen picture uh, with like Sofia Vergara and Sharon Stone, and he plays a fading gigolo in the movie that's hired by Woody Allen's character. And much to what I said last episode, when Woody Allen is in his movies, I hate him. When he's not in the movies, I like them. Therefore, he's in this. I did not like I love his character in this film. The one that isn't as neurotic as the other roles he's played. Did you like Fading Gigolo? Do you think this is a good movie? I gave it like a 73, I think. Okay. It's not the worst Woody Allen picture I've seen. Not, not a, I'd say it's middle of the road for the stuff I've seen. Oh, before we move on past Fading Gigolo, did you intentionally leave out his critical role as the narrator of the Derek Jeter Yankee First short film? No, I didn't. I didn't even realize that was a thing. I mean, I, I thought that was just a shot at James. Oh, I see. I didn't even see it on here. But he is a diehard Yankee fan. I mean, he was in... Uh, he, he played Billy Martin in that miniseries, The Bronx is Burning, and he was really good at it. That's right. I got to try to limit the Yankee talk in this, you know, back-to-back. Like, uh, we just got to... Come on. <laughs> I, actually, I actually met his brother uh, at a Yankee game. I was like, holy shit, that's the guy from NYPD Blue. And he took a picture with me. <laughs> and he's like, Nick DeToro. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah, we did a full review about the Yankees last time. So I was trying to limit it this time, Craig. So way to foil my plan. That's all right. It's all good. <laughs> Kyle, I bring up yoga all the time. James brings up the Yankees all the time. You bring up the Will Enium all the time. That's so cool. I was just trying to yeah. keep it on brand. <laughs> that's right. Last movie before Lois Critic is God's Pocket, one of Philip Seymour Hoffman's last movies. I played Arthur. Pretty big role alongside Hoffman in the movie. Decent flick. It's it's cool because it's one of PSH's last ones before. Mm-hmm. So it's weird to watch it knowing that he like literally committed suicide like four months later. What do you want to watch? God's Pocket. <laughs> <laughs> do I have the same mental response to God's Pocket as I have to Hot Pockets physically? Hot Pockets. <laughs> Burn to the touch on the outside, ice cold on the inside. Oh, that's funny, Dibs. <laughs> Lowest critic score is Rio, I Love You from 2014 segment film that James is, I'm sure, overjoyed to talk about. You know what? After getting a Bronx Tale, I deserve to draw the short straw. So this is an 8% on Rotten Tomato uh, from the critics, 14 from the audience. So I uh, universally panned this movie. Um. So Rio, I Love You is the third installment of a Cities of Love series, which I didn't know exists, which is uh, composed of several short stories by different directors. So they're kind of mashed together where it's different writers and directors and their stories are intertwined and they all pay homage to a particular city. So the first one was Jetem Perry, which uh, I butchered the French there, but it's I Love You Paris. And then the other one was New York, I Love You. And then now we have Rio. So it's actually 10 different stories. And Totoro is in one of the stories, and he actually directs the one that he's in. And, you know, a lot of the stories are mostly just like fluffy, random Rio touristy shots with a love story (laughs) kind of mixed in. And the stories kind of overlap erratically. So, like, you get chunks of some and stories, and then, like, kind of just like little tidbits of others. The pacing is kind of jarring. It kind of weakens your connection to the stories, but there were a few that stood out. Um, two of them I really liked. <laughs> I'm interested if we have the same ones, James, because there, there, there are two that I liked. The rest I pretty much hated, but two of them made me laugh. Okay, well, one of them 
caught me so fucking off guard and made me laugh. And it is like a hooker vampire love story. And it comes out of nowhere. And there's a dance scene. And it is so jarring. And I was like, is this guy a fucking vampire? Like, is he breaking out into dance? What is happening? And it's, I thought it was hysterically out of place. But it, I, I, it made me enjoy that. And the other one is like this super gritty uh, story which stars Jason Isaac. Uh, Isaacs, who's awesome, and he's only in it for like 10 minutes, but it's this super heavy story about this former boxer and model who both suffered like life-altering injuries in a car accident. And Jason Isaacs propositions the boxer who's like trying to get his life together, and his wife's essentially paralyzed. And so this boxer needs $80,000. And Jason Isaacs is like, all right, I have a deal for you. If you fight me and you win... I will pay the $80,000 for your wife's surgery. He goes, but if you fight me and you lose, I'll still pay the $80,000 for your wife's surgery, but she has to have a kid with me because she looks exactly like my ex-wife who died while she was pregnant in a car accident. And I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, that is such a fucking heavy story that's mixed in with like, chance meetings at coffee shops and like, uh-huh. Oh, this guy's sightseeing, at, you know, Christ, the redeemer. Like it's all like these random ones, but that one came out of nowhere. It's like, Whoa, that's a heavy fucking story. Uh, Kyle, what were the ones that you like? Did, did I nail them or were you not in on the vampire? One? No. So I don't know if I made it to the last two or three segments. Cause I probably fell asleep because it was late now because I was that bored. The one where really early in the movie where it's like Emily Mortimer plays like a gold digger with the old guy and he sends her into the fucking ocean. Oh, she gets swept away. Knowing the currents and she gets swept away by the current. He's just smoking cigs, eating chocolate. I was like, dude, this went from like a gold digger story to like he knows exactly what he's doing and he just fucking murdered this chick. Yeah, he's like, why don't you go swimming or something? (laughs) (laughs) Takes her out there so he can indulge in all the terrible things that he can't do. I felt like Turturro's segment was probably one of the more grounded ones of, of the group. I, I agree. It was grounded, but like his was interesting in that it's completely on the other end of the spectrums where some of them are absurd. His is grounded, but it's like realistic, really realistic and self-serious. And like, I thought the direction was good. I thought the, a- the acting was good. Mm-hmm. I just didn't think the story was as good as... Like there's not enough time for his story to have an emotional impact because you kind of come in on his story where there's these lovers quarreling and they're clearly at the end of a relationship. But like you don't have any context of what's going on. It it felt like I was watching like two actors performing like a studied scene for a class. And it's like, hey, nail this argument. And they nail the argument, but like I have no idea what we're talking about. No, none of context to really. Yeah, exactly. And so, like, it, it dramatically, it just fell fell a little flat. But I did appreciate in his direction. There's this song playing, and it's like the saddest fucking song, but it's sung beautifully, and it's in a foreign language. And so, like, you have no idea. But they put the lyrics at the bo- he put the lyrics at the bottom, and it like fits the scene perfectly. But again, like, you never see the characters again, and you don't know what is going on that has led to that point. So it's just like a quick slice of their life and out. And so it was just like, okay, those were good. But the rest of the movie, I get it. They don't mesh together. I understand why people hate it. Uh, I wouldn't say it's an eight. I just think it's like, I would, I'd probably double that up and put put it near a 20 because it just doesn't fit well together. And there's no cohesive story. 
but like some of the stories are good, you know. All right, that's lowest critic score. Rio, I love you. Another Sandler collab in 2015 in The Ridiculous Six, possibly one of the worst movies that's ever been made and that I've ever, certainly ever seen. And we've talked about it a few times in David Spade and Danny Trejo episodes. He plays Adner Doubleday, teaching people the, about the origin of baseball. So there's another baseball connection there. But other than that, it's a fucking atrocious movie, and I do not recommend it to anybody. It didn't even make it to the part where he's in the film. It's that fucking bad. You gave it the old college try, but it was your DNF? I literally said out loud, I was like, this is ridiculous. And I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I made it to the part where they in, uh, they introduced the character of Taylor Lautner, and I said, nope. Oh. <laughs> I was going to say, I think we maxed it out at 15 minutes total yep. there. <laughs> yeah, th- th- there's a movie I could recommend less of anything Torturo's in. It is The Ridiculous Six. The Night Of played John, a role that got him Emmy, Golden Globe, and SAG nominations. So I guess this is technically his most highly award-recognized role over the years. Excellent. His character's fucking unique, too, and you don't like him. I didn't like his character at all. But I think that's the way he played it. Yeah, he's a court-appointed lawyer. And the pilot episode of this is one of the best pilot episodes I've seen. It is so intriguing and so interesting. And the rest of the show is kind of like a... It's a view on kind of how flawed our legal system is. Even like... So they don't really let the viewer know if the main character is innocent or guilty until, you know, the final episode. But you get to watch everything that leads up to that and then everything after. And it just shows you how, like, the system fucking stinks. And Totoro, I think, is great in it. I think he's so... Him and Riz Ahmed are fantastic in this show. Yeah, you guys... You talked it up quite a bit last episode. So I was like, I gotta check this out. And I got hooked pretty quickly with it. It, the ending was a little lackluster, but the yeah. the the story building that they give here, and I, like you mentioned, they they don't give you too much about what actually happened. They they bleed it out episode after episode, um, and it keeps you pretty in, pretty locked in. And his character is somebody with eczema who's trying to like trying to do the right thing, but really isn't hardwired to do that. is is fascinating to watch. Yeah, he's like a little in over his head and he knows it. So he, in his mind, his job is just to like plea the people out. So he's usually just getting them to plead guilty and get a lesser sentence, but still get sentenced. And so when a guy is like vehemently maintaining his innocence, he's like, uh, I don't really know what the fuck to do here, man. Like, <laughs> he's like, uh... It's, an, it's a fascinating miniseries to watch on HBO Max. Highly recommend it to people. All right, let's get into the largest critic app. Dames, he's been waiting a while for his review, and it's finally his chance to shine. He's going to review Gloria Bell from 2018. I read the synopsis, and I was like, these motherfuckers. If there's an <laughs> art that I hate, it's dancing. I cannot stand it. And I'm reading this, and I'm like, I fucking hate dancing movies. I still have never seen Dirty Dancing. I've never seen Footloose in my life. Do you want me to spoil the endings for you? <laughs> Wait in the corner, baby. But there, he's, he's giving us a turn eventually because it's not really a dancing movie. You kind of get it. So I was like, <laughs> all right, I ha- if I have to, I have to. So I watched this movie and like, I got to tell you guys, this is in the genre of like my favorite movies of all time. My favorite movies of all time are, are drama films just focus on a segment of the person's life 
you don't see their birth or their death. Mm-hmm, you just mm-hmm. see like a segment of their life. Interesting. And then it's up to you what happens after or what happened before. Juliana Moore. She's basically a divorcee that goes to dance club to, I guess, meet people. And she meets Mr. Taturo there. And they go to dinner. And she learns a little bit about his idiosyncrasies. And then they do a whole lot of sex. But it's weird because he's got this hang-up with his kids, his adult children that are basically running his life. And she's um, got kids that she probably wishes were a little more that way, but she would never say it. Uh, her kids, like Michael Sarah's like, I, he's like the biggest adult. Yeah. Uh, and he's good at it. I mean, it's good. There, this is, has a great cast. Uh, I was like, Yes. I, I thoroughly enjoyed watching this. I actually ended up giving it a 77 overall. I want to write and and direct a movie where I can say, well, it's about this girl and this guy that get together, it doesn't work out, and then she shoots him with paintball. Oh, right. dude, I loved I I was wondering where the ending was going, and then when that happened, I was like, oh, that's pretty funny. I was like, that's pretty good. I was a big fan of Glory Bell when it came out in 2018. Is it- this is the biggest what gap? Largest critic gap, so it's... So the, the critics loved it, and the fans did not. And 91% from critics, 46 from audience. I agree. The movies you said you love are the movies that don't do well with fan rankings. Like, they're like, oh, what was the point? And it's like, dude, it's a little more nuanced. Like, I think Julianne Moore is, like, one of the, the best actresses there is. And yes. she does so well in this where it's like, what you mentioned about Michael Sarah, I thought was so funny because as a, a new parent – I love that every time she asks to see the baby, he's like, no, 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 I got it. Because that is exactly what my wife and I did to our parents. We're like, do you want, do you need any help? I was like, fuck no, don't even touch that kid. (laughs) Like, I got it. Like, leave the kid. Like, it's like when, when the girl is 10, you can hang out with her right now. Let us do this. I'm so glad you guys enjoyed this movie. Cause as a critic app movie with 46% audience, I was like, Oh, I didn't realize so many fans didn't like this movie. Because it was a top 10 movie for me that year. I loved it. She's so charming. And Turturro, his, I think he plays Desperation really well in this movie. I love the dinner scene. I thought he was amazing in it. I totally understood what he was going through. Like He did such a good job portraying, like, hey, this isn't that bad of a night, but it's actually like the worst it could possibly be. Like your ex-husband's here and he's being super polite, and I want to fucking kill myself. Like, <laughs> Brad Garrett. Like, yeah. Yep. Three men just being like, fuck yeah, this story of like a woman in her like 50s reclaiming what her new life is going to be like. Fucking love it. I understand him being pissed when, you know, you get introduced as this is my friend. Be like, I'm just going to go vomit in the bathroom. I'm your friends. Like, come on. You're referring to the scene where he confronts her in the parking garage, right? Yeah. It's like. Be like here. Oh, this is my ex-husband, and this is uh, my friend John. Be like, oh, cool. Fuck off. Well, you know how old we are. Stop yeah. that bullshit. <laughs> like, cool. We're banging. We're banging. Is that not like triggering to like the shitty relationships that you've had in your past? Where you're like, I remember this fucking combo. It's like, what? You're not going to tell your friends I'm your girlfriend? Be like, oh my god. A few things since Glory Bell, present day. He's done a lot of TV. So including three recurring characters between 2019 and 2020 and some different shows. But the the big one most recently, he got an Emmy nomination for his role as Irving in Severance, which is on Apple TV+. I dug through, I think I think I got through like five episodes. I, again, a really unique character from him that I, I haven't seen from him any other point in his career. 
I got addicted to it, knocked out the whole season in like a day and a half uh, because when you're changing a thousand diapers, you got <laughs> some downtime. It is a, it's such a cool plot. It's like a, how would I describe it? It's a sci-fi show about like this dystopian future where there is this procedure you can get done where you can separate who you are at work from who you are in your personal life. So you would show up to work and essentially like flip a switch and not know what you did for eight hours and then wake up and be on your way back home from work. And it's elective. So like you don't have to have it done. And the main star is Adam Scott and his, one of his three coworkers is John Turturro. And the way it kind of unfolds is super fascinating and uh, dark and it dark dystopian kind of shit like that is extremely my bag. So I'm excited for season two. I thought Turturro was great. In it. And then most recently, the, the Batman, he played Carmine Falcone in Matt Reeves's, you know, film noir. And I, I think it's just so cool to see he's how he started in 80, 42 years into his career and still playing incredibly relevant movie roles. I think that's awesome. He's great in this movie. And, and, and he, he brought something different to this character from like the Nolan stuff of Falcone, which I thought was really fun to see. I agree. He's like, he's like more of a smooth talker and kind of a charmer as opposed to the other ones. He's like more ruthless and whatnot. And yeah. Yeah, I enjoyed him in this. I didn't expect to see him too when when we were watching the movie. I, I mean, I knew he was in the movie, of course, but like when it turned in, he's Falcone. I was like, had no clue, did not see that coming. I think the way he plays his character adds a little bit of depth to this movie. I do too, especially like you guys just talked about how yeah. how he played this role. It it was really well done. So top performances, I pulled up a list from Collider dot com of. John Turturro's nine best movie performances. I wonder how many I have this list of myself, so I wonder how many. We'll see. And it's not in order, um, and it looks like it's only filmed. And it came out in 2022, in April 2022, so it's very recent. So Okay, so all four Transformers, so there's four right off the list. <laughs> I don't think Transformers is on here. No, it is not. Sorry. Well, Quiz Show has to be. Yeah. Quiz Show? Barton Fink's got to be on there. Quiz Show is on here. Barton Fink is on here. Do the Right Thing. Do the Right Thing is on here. Yep. This is a good list. I Brother, where are those got to be on there? Oh, yeah. Yep. Yep. 100%. Uh, Lebowski on there? Big Lebowski is on there. Yep. Limited screen time, but very memorable. Gloria Bell. Gloria Bell is on here. Yep. The last one on the list. Beating Gigolo on there? Nope. Oh, it's mo- one of his most notable... Shut the fuck up. We're missing a big Coen Brothers role. Miller's Crossing. Miller's Crossing is on there. So we're down to one? Down to two. We're missing two. One we talked about, one we didn't. Five Corners? Nope. I so badly want it to be Anger Management, but I don't think it's it. <laughs> it's not. Nope. It is a Spike Lee movie. One of the, one, the ones we're missing that we talked about, but we just mentioned it. He Got Game? Nope. Mo Better Blues? From 1995. There's nine Spike Lee movies, yeah, so it's going to be hard to do. Clockers. It, it is Clockers. Okay, there you go. Harvey, Harvey Keitel and Mackay Pfeiffer. And Delroy Lindo. I love Delroy. Yeah, he's great. There's one we didn't talk about, and that is Landline from 2017. Oh, yeah. It says it's a low-key little dramedy that doesn't have quite the name recognition of many of the other films. 
mention, but it's still a vital reflection of his eventual mellowing out as an actor. Reviewed well. 75 by critics, 64 by fans. I mean, we didn't hit everything, but like the dude's done 114 and he's been in bangers, man. Lots and lots of good yeah. movies. So yep. what do we think Without of this list? What, what would we call his top three? Uh, easily Quiz Show, Big Lebowski, and Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? That's my three. I, that is a pretty good list. This is one of those where I don't, I think we could all have slightly different top three lists and it's completely okay. I concur with the previous doctors. <laughs> Why didn't I concur? I would probably say Quiz Show, Barton Fink, and probably Miller's Crossing for me. Definitely Big Lebowski. It's pretty good, good, though. I don't know. That might be a top three, too. That's just tough. So, let me ask you this. Are you leaving off Lebowski because of a small role? Yeah, a little bit less screen time. It's the best movie on the, on the list. It's a top fiver in my book, 100%. <laughs> All right, uh, months of meter time. What we do, we rank every actor on a scale of zero to 100 based on a variety of factors that could include longevity, project choice, pop culture impact, acting range, awards footprint, any other talents they might have, their personal life, comedic chops, box office success, or lack thereof, and anything else that matters to us as Munson's. So, Case. Like I said earlier, he's one of my favorite character actors, him and Sam Rockwell, and I've been kind of going back and forth on how I compare the two of them. You know, the guy's been in the game forever. Super good with longevity. He's one of those actors that when most people see them, they're like, oh, I didn't know he was in this. They appreciate his performance. Yep. I'm going to give him a pretty good score. You know, 42 years after he got in the game, he's still playing incredibly relevant roles and he's kicking ass in them. So I'm going to give him an 86. Love it. I love his collabs with Spike, the Coens. They trust him to bring characters to life. And unique and give him freedom to do that. And I think he's shown he can play complex characters really well. Unlike Chaz last time, who for the most part, one trick ponies in terms of the types of characters he played. Um, I love that he, he can lead a film. He can play an essential side character. He can play a baddie like he does in Batman, Miller's Crossing, Circuit Window, Zohan, Five Corners. He plays oddball roles like Oh Brother, Luzin, The Jesus, Disco Bean. I mean, in terms of just, like, range, the guy's got it pretty much everything you're looking for. Uh, I respect his theater training and background. I respect his directing work, even though the stuff I've seen I'm not a huge fan of. But he's done enough to at least showcase that he can handle that role. And he's still, that's for, when you're in your fifth decade of acting and you're still doing incredible stuff, winning awards or being nominated for awards just, like, two weeks ago, um, that goes to show that you're, you're still on top of your game. He has no plans to retire, from what I can tell. Um, his awards footprint is lacking a little bit. He's missed some big accomplishments. Maybe they'll come, maybe not. Who knows? Um, but regardless, I'm much like Case. I gave, I didn't realize this, but I gave Sam Rockwell an 85. So one point less than Case. And when I did my math, Turo got an 85. Bingo. Following Case here, the same exact score for both of them. Uh, Dames is our guest months in Europe. It's funny because I wrote down seven names before we did this. Uh, of the greatest character actors that I can think of. And that would be J.K. Simmons, J.T. Walsh, Sam Rockwell, John Turturro, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Mark Ruffalo, and Chris Cooper. Those guys, if you had those guys in them... That's a great list. ...do anything. Those guys can do anything. And you would be hard-pressed to find better people to fill a, a cast than those guys. 
Um, and John Turturro is as good as any of them. When I come up with my final score, remember, for movies, 85 is a must-see film. 85 or higher is a must-see film. I do think because he's done Transformers and some other things, I can't give him, I can't give him an 85 because <laughs> I don't think that everything he does is a must-see. Philip Seymour Hoffman, I felt he was absolutely a must-see actor in everything he did. Rockwell is becoming a must-see. Ruffalo, must-see. They're all above 85 for me. So I give him one point lower. I'm at 84. Fair. Very fair score, my friend. A lot of logic, Dames. Yep. You guys all said it. I mean, I think we, we touched on it in the beginning of the episode is like he is underrated, but I feel like he's starting to become accurately appreciated. You know, uh, like I saw someone describe him and I, I thought it was beautiful and I'm going to steal it is like he's your favorite actor's favorite actor. Yeah. He, he's good in everything he does. Even if the project isn't that good, and since uh, you know we're both from the old country, I'm going to give him an extra couple points there. The old Italian bump, hey? That's that's right. You know he's from you know he's the fishing side, we're the farming side. I bet our great grandfathers had a couple beers together. Uh, I'm going to give him an 82. All right, so with that, it gives John Turturro an 84.25, which puts him in ninth place, Ooh, which is top ten. Well, I guess it's he's between Willem Dafoe and Angela Bassett. The two Transformers actors, back-to-back. Look at that. Interesting. Dude, these scores are getting tight. They are. All right, James, what what does Turturro have coming? So, let me see here. Oh, my God. Post-production, unfortunately. He's in Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. I'm so out on Pinocchio, man. Like... Why do we keep doing this? It's not like I just don't find it to be that fascinating of a story. And like it's been told a lot recently. I don't know why everyone's so in on Pinocchio. Not for me. I hope it does great. Is there a new Mr. and Mrs. Smith coming out? Look, that's the new thing. I think it's a TV series. Okay. All right. Well, if that's the case, he's in that as well. And then there is two that he's also in that are in pre-production, which is Bless Me Father and Can't Go Home. And Kyle, if you have either of those up, I'd love to hear about them. Uh, Can't Go Home is a TV series. Looks like gangsters of Boston's underground and, and cop stuff. So it looks like cop, you know, cops and robbers kind of tale. Bless Me Father, plot unknown, but director Nicholas Turturro. So his brother is oh, directing. Your buddy. is directing this one. All right, um, next podcast is going to hit August 11th. We've got Mike Rodemaker coming back. He was here for, I mean, he comes for bangers normally. So he's here for Jim Carrey, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and Marishala. Dames' numbers will be pretty high, but Daryl Hannah's score brings your average down a little bit overall. Those three actors, it's a pretty high average score in terms of Munson meter. Who do we like from this list? We've got Tony Collette, Diane Ladd, Josh Brolin, Jesse Eisenberg, Claire Danes. What do we like? What do we dislike? And who do we think? Rodmaker coming to join us for. There's three on that list I really like. Tony Collette is awesome. Amazing. Incredible. I would love to cover Josh Brolin as well. Also I don't know a lot about Diane Ladd. Uh, I know I learned recently that that's Laura Dern's mom. Who knew? Um, so that would be a lot of learning for me, which is always fascinating to do. Claire Danes, I, I pretty much only know her from my sisters were obsessed with my so-called life in the 90s. Um, and so that's pretty much all I got. 
Uh, and I like Jesse Eisenberg. I, I, I think he's funny. I like his quirkiness. I vote for Diane Lane. Diane Lane is my cougar of choice. <laughs> Always. Cougar of choice forever. I don't know. Like, as I look at this list, I mean, Diane Ladd would give us a chance to watch the oldest films and, and do some deeper stuff that I haven't seen. Um, you know, stuff in the 60s and 70s. So that's interesting. Uh, probably hard to find. Probably have to pay for some of those things. But Brolin's just a badass. I think he's ex- exceptional in everything. And I'll rewatch Sicario any day of the week. Oh, it's great. I love Sicario. Another Marvel actor, obviously, if we, if we tackled him. Dude, one of my buddies brought something up that's so, so there's this running joke. Because uh, once you see it, Kyle, you can't unsee it. So next time we hang out, you'll see it. Is oh. the way my body is proportioned is I have a oddly long torso. Uh-huh. And so my wife is about seven inches shorter than me and our legs are the same length. Um, and <laughs> my buddy's <laughs> like, yeah, dude, you're built like Josh Brolin. I was like, what are you talking about? And I looked. He's also has an oddly long torso. So us oddly long torsoed individuals, uh, I would vote for him as well. For the brand. He's got a kick-ass show on Amazon TV right now. What's it called? It's awesome. Outer Horizon? I watched the whole thing and have no fucking clue what happened. <laughs> I just realized Claire Danes only has 45 credits on her filmography. And her first feature film looks like it would probably be Little Women. So, you get a chance to talk about how delightful Gabe Byrne is again. I mean, it is a delightful movie, but there's only so many times I could cover that movie, you know? <laughs> yeah. And then you got The Hours, Homeland, other stuff like that. Romeo and Juliet's probably like the, the big one she's known for in the 90s. Oh, Boz. Who do we think Rodmaker's picking? Tony Collette. That would be my pick. Diane Lane. <laughs> Sticking to my guns. Uh, who would you pick, James, if you had to double up? Oh, Tony Collette would be my Tony Collette. My ultimate episode with you guys would be Jack Nicholson. Oh, the legend. All right. Well, we don't decide. Dames doesn't decide. James doesn't decide. The wheel decides. And we'll see what happens. God willing, it decides something good. Um, all right, Dames, we've reached the end. We were down a month in tonight. So you came in the clutch, my friend. It's always a great time. We appreciate you being here. Yeah, dude. This is your chance to plug anything you're working on and or provide some words of wisdom to our audience. It's the only time I come is in the clutch. <laughs> the, did you say the clutch or the crotch? <laughs> it's the same. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Uh, Lock22 desperately needs subscribers on the YouTube channel. Um, there, I promise you there's massive amounts of content coming. That's about it. Yeah. We appreciate you, man. You're always great. Good, co- co- good comedic relief. You love... Love the fucking dramas. It's just a good time, man. It is a blast cutting it up with you. I always love having you on, man. Yeah, thanks, guys. All right, well, as we wrap things up, you can find us on Twitter, Munson's at Movies. You can find us on the IG, Munson's at the Movies. You can email us, Munson's at the Movies at gmail.com. Any final thoughts from John Turturro? Let me tell you something, Pandeo. You pull any of your crazy shit with us, you flash a piece out on the lane. I'll take it away from you and stick it up your ass and pull the fucking trigger till it goes click. Nobody fucks with the Jesus. Munson's out. All right, let's go. Thank you for the education, gentlemen. We've just received a PhD in stupidity. Doctor, shall we? Wow! You kind of just 
snuck up on me there, ma'am. I fear you're underestimating the sneakiness, sir. 